0: We have made ourselves to the last week of Jesus' life. And a couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon titled, uh, The King in the Temple. Because for about two chapters, we see Jesus inside the temple interacting with scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and regular Jewish worshipers. And so we looked at this big 30,000-foot view of what all is going on with the, the king and the temple. And then last week, we zeroed in on the widow, the poor widow, who gave all the money that she had as an act of worship and as an act of faith in God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34. Chapter chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, the title of the message this morning is, The Most Important of All. The Most Important of All. And so I will read verses 28 to 34. We'll pray, and we'll launch right into the message. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. God, we pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to understand the fundamental principles that are laid out before us in this passage, and that we would know you and love you and love others in the power of the Holy Spirit as a result of this study. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're going to be successful in any discipline of life, you've got to know the fundamental principles of that discipline. You've got to know the fundamental principles of that discipline. Uh, let's just take some trivial things like, like typing. Like if you want to be a good typist, you've got to know the fundamental principles of typing. I remember when I was a freshman in college and started having to write papers. And I started to write my first papers that had to be like five, six, and seven pages long. And I was just pecking away. You know, and then I'm like, where is the cue? I'd be looking, oh, where is the cue? You know, it's up there in that left-hand corner. And it just took me forever. And so the next semester, I took typing. I took keyboarding. And man, I was terrible. I was, I was the slowest guy in the class, but over a period of time, I learned to type. And now, every week, I type out my sermons, sometimes 5,000, 6,000 words, and I'm just going along. Why? Because I learned the fundamental principles of typing. Driving, for instance. If you're going to be a good driver, you've got to learn the fundamental principles of driving. When I was 15, my dad bought me a truck. I was about to turn 16, and it was a straight-shift uh, truck. It was a 1986 Nissan pickup. It had, uh, I think it had gone underwater or something, it had, um, it had all kinds of problems with it, but it drove really good. It, was, it drove really good, but the only problem was I couldn't drive it because I didn't know how to drive a straight-shift, a stick-shift. And so my dad and my brother would get in the car, and my dad would try to drive it, but I didn't understand that concept of, you know, letting off the clutch and putting in the accelerator. And so if any of you have ever tried to learn to drive a straight shift, um, it looked like the truck was blowing up whenever I would drive. It It would be, boom, you know, boom, like this. And my brother laughed at me, and I wanted to hit him, um, but I didn't understand that fundamental principle, and so it was was ugly. Um, Some other people don't understand principles like you need to accelerate when you're on the on-ramp to get on the interstate, right? That's a fundamental principle of driving. You have to understand that. If you're a student, you need to understand the fundamental principle of studying, right? The fundamental principles of studying are gather all the information, read the information, synthesize it so that you can understand it and it's pointed so that there are clear statements, and then read it and reread it and commit it to memory. That's what studying is, right? But if you don't know how to do that, then you're going to be a bad student. You could go, well, we could use basketball. We'll use that one as the last example, like and there are a lot of people who look at basketball and think that all basketball is is shooting. But in reality, especially if you ever watch the movie Hoosiers, you know that it's not all about shooting. All right? First of all, you've got to be in great cardiovascular uh, condition. That's one of the You ever turn on the television, you never see a bunch of obese basketball players. Right? Why? Because you have to be in great condition. You have to learn the fundamentals of defense, keeping yourself between the person you're guarding and the goal. And on offense, it's about ball movement and movement without the ball. But if if you don't know those fundamental principles, you're going to be bad at basketball, even though you might have a, a pretty shot. So my point is this. If you don't understand the fundamental principles of any discipline, you're not going to be successful at it. And what we see in this text is the fundamental principle of worship. That's what this text is about, all right? It addresses the fundamental principles of worship, and there is nothing more important than worship. And for those of you who want to know, well, what, what is worship? I define worship, according to what I read in the Scripture, as the work of celebrating your covenant relationship with a holy and triune God. It is the work of celebrating your relationship, your covenant relationship with God Himself. But, but, but we have to ask, well, how do I celebrate God? How do I work at knowing Him and loving Him and all of that? Well, the text tells us and so this is the big idea this is where we're going to hang everything on the heart of acceptable worship is knowing God loving God and loving others that is the fundamental principle of worship knowing him loving him and loving others all right and so the key to it is this because a lot of people would say yeah I believe that but the key to the fundamental principle of worship is embracing Jesus Christ as Lord Embracing Jesus Christ as Lord. All right, so so some would say, well, this, this text is more about love. I would say, yes, it is about love, but it is primarily about worship. And so, what I want to do right now is I want to give you three issues about worship that will help you be a better worshiper. Three issues about worship that will help you be a better worshiper. And so, the first we see in verse 28 is the question about worship. The question about worship. one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Let me set the context of this question. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be handed over. He's about to be executed. He's in the temple. And what's going on is these self-righteous religious leaders are coming to Jesus and they're asking Him these various questions the text tells us in order to trap Him, in order to trick Him, in order to condemn Him. And so like the Pharisees and the scribes approach Him and say, hey, Jesus, you're supposed to know all this stuff about worship and everything else. What about Caesar? Are are, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? And they think that this is going to get Him in trouble with the Romans or else in trouble with the religious leaders. And Jesus then expounds on what our attitude toward the government should be and our actions toward them. And he ultimately says, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to who? God what is God's. And they didn't have anything to say to that. And then the Sadducees come who don't believe in the resurrection from the dead and they're trying to trap him and they concoct this this story that is just crazy they, they, they say this they say okay this is the deal there was this guy who was married to this woman and and he died and they didn't have any kids and so his brother came and married him because that's what the leverite law said but then he died and they didn't have any kids and so the next brother came and he died and they didn't have any kids and then the next brother came and he married her and he died and didn't have any kids and there were seven brothers and they all married this woman and they never had any kids so who's whose um, wife will this woman be in heaven, in glory? And they think, oh, this is really going to get him. But Jesus says, you know neither the power of God or the scriptures. For there is not marriage in heaven. Remember him saying this? We, we looked at this and studied it a few weeks ago. And they all just shut up at that point because he answered them from the scriptures with the power of God and they had no response to it. So, so you have this going on in the temple, but then this guy comes up and you he's earnest. He's sincere. Notice that, that Mark doesn't say anything about this scribe wanting to trap him, this, this scribe wanting to trick him, this scribe wanting to set him up for execution. No, he comes up and the spirit of his question is sincere. He's intrigued. And I think one observation that I made, guys, is this. Not all the scribes and Pharisees were egomaniacs and self-righteous hypocrites. They weren't all that way. All right, and, and I think Nicodemus is an example of that. Nicodemus, as a spiritual leader, searches Jesus out in the dark and has earnest questions because he knew he had a need in his heart that wasn't being filled by the religious system that in which he lived. And so the spirit of the question is earnest. The purpose of the question is to understand the fundamental principle of the law. And like I said, the fundamental principle is, is so critical to understanding anything in life. Like, I think I saw Christy Hicks here. Christy, you're here. What is the fundamental principle in real estate? Isn't it a location? Oh, isn't that what they say? Location, location, location. Yeah, and 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 like. Uh like when I was working with, with a hotel recently, a couple years ago, I worked for about six months at a hotel and I was just bombarded with all this information and all of these things to do and it's, you know, making breakfasts and filling out receipts and answering the phone call and working on the computer and I would just get so harried and I was like, what, what am I supposed to do? And then I realized, customer service, customer service. Meet the needs of the customer first. And that grounded me. That helped me do everything else well because I knew that my goal was to meet the the customer's need. And so what this guy's question is, is what is the fundamental principle of all the law? I've got to tell you this before we move further. The, The Jews had read the Old Testament time and time again, and they had derived that there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. 613 there were 248 positive commands and 365 negative commands. That is, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. 613, that's a lot to memorize. That's a lot to know, and that's a lot to do. And so what this, this, this guy is doing, the scribe is doing, he's saying, listen... There's 613 laws. Is there any way, Jesus, that we can distill this thing down to understand what that fundamental principle law is so that we can know how to live our lives? And so that's the question, and that's the essence of it. And so let's look at Jesus' answer. The second part of your outline will be the answer about worship. If the first is the question about worship, now we get to the root and the heart of the matter, the answer. Let's read verses 29 through 31 again. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. If you're taking notes, what you want to write down under this heading is this, is that worship starts with knowing God. Worship starts with knowing God. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 here. It's what's known as the great Shema. The Hebrew word Shema is translated in English, hear, listen, listen up, listen, in order to obey is the idea. Like when, when my three boys and I have to have heart-to-heart talks uh, occasionally, um, I, you know, they will all be standing beside one another and I might say to them, do you hear me? Do you understand me? And by that, I don't mean, do you cognitively comprehend the concept in which I am I'm talking about? No, no. The idea is, do you feel the weight of the instruction that I have just given you? Do you hear me? All right? That's the idea of the Shema here. That's the idea of here. Do you feel the weight of it so that not only do you hear it and listen to it, but you're trying to try to obey it? And that's what Jesus is saying. First of all, hear this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is Jesus doing here? He is telling us about the uniqueness and the singularity of God. He's saying before you need to understand about loving God and loving others, you've got to know who He is in order to love Him and in order to love uh, other people. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, the question is, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? It's a rhetorical question because the the answer is nobody. Nobody is like the Lord. If you just think about this, this statement, Deuteronomy 6, 4, in the context in which the first people who heard that statement were living, you have to understand who their God is. First of all, He is the God who existed in eternity past. In eternity past, forever and ever and ever in the past, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they existed together as one God in three persons, in perfect fellowship, in perfect love, in perfect intimacy with one another, in perfect appreciation of one another. They were self-sustaining. They had no needs. They had no problems. They had no issues in life. No, they were perfect and enjoyed perfection. But in God's love and in His grace and in His desire for people to know Him and worship Him and enjoy Him, He creates the entire world and the entire universe and then He creates man and woman in His image. And it wasn't because He needed man and woman. It was because He wanted to love man and woman and for them to share in His glory and in His likeness. And so with Adam and Eve, He sets up this perfect plan to tend the garden, to keep it, to rule and reign on the earth and to enjoy perfect fellowship with him. And that's exactly what happened for a short period of time. And then Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent and they said, you know what, we want to be like God. We want to usurp God's authority. Yeah, we'll eat this fruit in order to usurp God and trump God. And the entire universe fell at that point. It just fell. And there was a curse over all of it. And God cursed the land and cursed the people because they had decided they wanted to be better than Him. But God, in His faithfulness, did not send Adam and Eve to hell. He did not judge them immediately and say, you are doomed and you are damned. No, He still is faithful to love them and to provide for them a way of redemption. And so as we read through the book of Genesis, we see that that people continue to rebel against God and reject His authority and spurn His love until in Genesis chapter 6, God just says, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. And I'm going to save Noah and his wife and Noah's sons and their wives through, through water by way of a flood. And, and so He does. He destroys all, all of the people and all of the animals except the animals and the, and the people that were on the ark. But after that is over and they get out, God establishes a covenant and says, I will never do that again. And then, as we read through the book of Genesis, we see in Genesis chapter 12, this is huge. This is huge. God looks at this man named Abram. He's not any special guy. There's nothing glorious about him. He's not especially handsome. He's not especially worshipful. He's not especially, especially anything. And God looks at him, and he says, Abram, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. It's not because of anything great that you are. It's everything great about me, and I love you, and I want you to do, I want you to leave your family, leave your home, leave all of your familiarity, and I want you to come to a land that I'm going to give to you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed because of you. And I'm going I'm to cause you to, to bear a child, who will bear a child, who will bear a child, who will bear a child, and all of the earth will be blessed, and ultimately the Redeemer will come from you. And sure enough, that's exactly what God does. And at the age of 100, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, struggling. They're believing God, but how could they possibly have a child? God gives them a child. He proves Himself faithful to His promise. But then what happens? What happens after that? The people of Israel turn from God. They're idolatrous. They reject Him. They ultimately find themselves in captivity in Egypt. And they cry out to God in Exodus chapter 2 and 3. And they say, we need help. Have mercy on us. And Moses, chosen by God, meets with God in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And y'all can remember this interaction because Moses sees the burning bush, right? And the bush is not consumed. And all of a sudden, the bush starts talking to Moses. Moses. And the, and, and, and the angel of the Lord, it says, begins to speak to Moses. And he says, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to lead my people out of the stiff and hard hand of Pharaoh and I want you to lead them into the promised land, Moses. And Moses says, I, I don't think I can do that. He says, yes, you can do it. He says, well, but, but if I go, who should I tell them has sent me? Remember this? And God says, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am I am has sent you. What does that mean? I am who I am is the covenant name of God. It means the eternally existent, eternally present God. I always am and I'm always here. Know me because I'm making a covenant with you. And so go and deliver them and tell them that I am has sent you. Well now, that's exactly what happens and by God's grace and in His faithfulness and His covenant love, He delivers Israel out of bondage. And you guys can remember the Passover. You can remember the Red Sea being parted. You can remember the, the, the Israelites walking through the dry ground. And then when the, when the Egyptians start following, all of the sea collapses on, on them and kills them and destroys them. And then when they get to the other side, they have no food to eat. And God provides manna for them in order to live day by day by day. He's proving His faithfulness. He's proving His love. And then right before they enter into this promised land, after 40 years or so of, of, of wandering around in the desert because of their own rebellion, God in His faithfulness says to the people of Israel, here, here, listen, this is God. Know that I am God and that I am one. So, so when you hear Jesus say, First of all, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the background. This is not just plucking it out of plain air. Oh, yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's worship Him. No. What they're thinking and what they should be thinking is the faithful creator, the loving redeemer, the one who has rescued our life out of Egypt, provided for us in every way that we needed, the one who was faithful to us when we were faithless to Him, the one who was loving to us when we were loveless toward Him, that's the God who is. Okay? And so we've got to understand that if we want to know God and then ultimately worship Him. Yeah. And then I'll just say one more thing on His singularity. The Lord is one. Jesus is affirming the fact that there is only one God. There is one God only. And when He speaks, there is no other God to contradict what He speaks. When He acts, there is no other God that can, that can act upon Him to counteract what He has done. Right. There is one God. And so, before we move any further... I want to say this. Worshiping God starts with understanding the character and the work of God. You cannot worship deeply whom you know barely. I think I lived so much of my life trying to worship deeply whom I knew barely. And I did not understand what made a person live a radically Christian life. I didn't even understand why a person would want to raise their hands in a worship service. I didn't understand why a person would want to prostrate themselves in silent prayer. I didn't understand why someone would want to spend an hour alone with God. Why did I not understand that? Because I didn't know God. But but the more you know God, the more you're going to love Him and have affections for Him. So worship starts with knowing God. The second thing that Jesus wants us to know is that worship is expressed by loving God. It is expressed by loving God. Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now for you, you guys who are just looking down at the text right here, what is the main verb? What, what is the, the chief command word in that statement? Love. Love. What does it mean to love? It means to, de- to desire something. To desire someone and to delight in that person or in that thing. It's a desire and a delight. It's longing after something, and then once you get it, you're delighting in that which you have longed for. That's what it means to love. It's to feel satisfaction in someone or to something. Now, there is a word, uh, it's a descriptive word that is used four times. You are to love the Lord your God with what? Awe. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. What Jesus is saying is that it is a completeness of devotion. I read one scholar on this, and I'd like to repeat him here. He says, because the whole man is the object of God's covenant love, the whole man is claimed by God for himself. To love God in the way defined by the great commandment is to seek God for his own sake to have pleasure in Him and to strive impulsively after Him in an unconditional manner. I would say it this way. A halfway commitment to God is worth the same thing as if I were to take a dollar bill and rip it in half and give one, of it, one part of it to Adam and me keep another half. If I go over here to Dollar General, are, are they going to take my money? No. Is it worth anything? No, it's worthless. It's worthless. And what Jesus is essentially affirming is that a halfway commitment to God is worthless. It has no value. Because you you are to give all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's just take a look at these descriptive words here. The first one is heart. He says you've got to love God with all your heart. Now, he is not talking about that that blood-pumping organ all right, in your body. He's actually talking about who you are on the inside. That's what he's talking about. It's it's all that you think, all that you desire, all that you want, all that you feel. It's everything that you are on the inside. It's your identity in your inner man. That's what your heart is. It controls your feelings, your emotions, your passions, your desires. It's that innermost place in your life. I'm talking about that deep down place where you say to yourself, I love God. I'm going to give my life to God. Or you say, I'm not ready for that. I'm not going to do that. That's where your heart is. And Jesus is saying, love Him with all your heart. He says, love Him with all your soul. And if the heart is who you are, then the soul is what you feel. I mean, it's that vitality about you. It's the motivating power that brings strength of will to your life. It gives you energy and strength for Him. When I think about the soul and the soul of, of loving God with, with everything that you've got, all of your energy, I think of the Apostle Paul. When you read the Apostle Paul, man, you just, you just you, you have a, a window into this man's soul. When I read the book of Philippians, when he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, that yes, I might even be conformed to the likeness of His death. And he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's his soul bleeding. We get to see his soul there. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to love God with all of your soul. And he says, with your mind. If your soul is what you feel, and if your heart is who you are, your mind is your thought life. It's what directs your thinking and your judgment. Even use a big word, it's your intellect. I think what Jesus is saying here is that God has no use for a lazy mind. God has no use for a lazy mind. I read one pastor who said, what can God do with those who are content to remain forever in spiritual kindergarten and never progress beyond now I lay me down to sleep prayers? He says the early Christians were tough-minded. They not only outlived and outdied their enemies, the writings of the New Testament testify that they also outthought them. They read, they studied, they wrote, and they served God with all their minds. And I would say this, believer it is a tragedy for Christians to be experts in geometry, experts in engineering, and experts in sports, but novices in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a tragedy because Jesus says, Love God with all of your mind. And he says, love Him with all of your strength. That is, with all of your physical and material capabilities. It includes your talents and your possessions. And last week we saw the poor widow. We saw her and, and that she was a perfect example of someone who loves God with all of her strength. Did she have much physical strength? No, but she took everything that she had and went to the temple. And did she have many material goods? No, but she took everything that she had and she gave it unto God. This was an expression of loving God with all of her strength. So that's what the Lord calls us to. To love God with every fiber of our being. Love Him with everything you have inside of you. Because He's worthy. Let's take a breath and we'll look at the final aspect of this command this answer that Jesus gives. It's worship is demonstrated by loving others. Worship is demonstrated by loving others. He says the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The first thing that Jesus is doing is showing that the first commandment and the second commandment are inseparable. Like, you can't love, God, uh, love others rightly and truly if you don't love God rightly and truly. We, we sometimes think that we can separate those two. But I just, let, me, let me just be really clear in this principle. A non-Christian, a non-believer can help out another person and do something really good for that person. And I think that we could even see this, let's just say you've got this rich non-Christian who helps out this poor non-Christian and says, hey, I want to buy you a meal. And that person buys the person a meal. And we can look at that and say, wow, that's a good thing. And it is a good thing. But I just want you to know, that person is not truly loving the other person. Why? Why? Because his motive is not the glory of God. His motive is not the honor of God. His motive is not the esteem of God. And we said two weeks ago that any gift and any act is as worthy as the heart of the worshiper, all right? So we can say, yes, that's great. All rich people should help poor people, and that's a good thing. But in the eyes of God, it's not a true act of worship, all right? I just want to make that distinction. So I think that should still keep happening. They just need to know it has no eternal value, all right? And so what Jesus does is he really recites Leviticus 19.18. Don't turn there, but let me just read it to you. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, he says you don't need to reject the sons of your own people. What the Israelites had done has has confined their neighbor to the sons of their own people. I don't know if you understand this, what it means is, Israelites loved Israelites. <laughs> That's what they had confided. Israelites loved Israelites. And Jesus does a good job of explaining exactly who our neighbor is. If you've got an open Bible, I want you to take your Bible and just turn over one book to the right, Luke, go to Luke chapter 10. We're going to do just a little bit of an inductive Bible study and interact with each other right here, because we want to ask the question, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Who is my neighbor? And what does it mean for me to love my neighbor as myself? So look at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This this is a perfect example and demonstration of exactly what Jesus is talking about. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How, How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, I want you to observe as I read here, observe what it means to be a neighbor to another person, okay? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, the priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. when I come back, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Okay, so I want to ask the question, How did the Samaritan love this Jewish man? What, are, what were some expressions of love that we see in this passage? He did. Yes, he sacrificed his money and time. What? Yes. And aren't we always on our way somewhere? Is there ever a convenient time to break down or is there ever a convenient time to help somebody who's broken down? Have you ever gone by somebody who's broken down and said, you know what, I would help that person, but I've got to be at this place. Yeah. Right, sure, sure. Okay, so he sacrificed his time and his money. What else did he do? He did. He had compassion on him. He saw him, and he put himself in, in that guy's shoes and said, boy, I would, I would hate to be in that condition. He had compassion. It was mercy in action. What else did he have? He did. He set aside social differences. Is that what you're going to say, Pam? What? Oh, yeah. And think about it. He's not carrying around a first aid kit. So he's likely using his own shirt, his own coat, something that's going to get bloody, nasty, and all of that. D.C. is right. This is a Samaritan onto a Jew. Samaritans and Jews didn't even talk to each other. They didn't interact with each other, much less help one another. And so he puts all that aside, racial and ethnic divides aside, in order to meet his need. What else does he do? When I come back. Good insight. He said, no, I'm not just doing this one act and be done. When I come back, I'll take care of the the balance of the bill if the two denarii was not enough. Robbie. Absolutely, yeah. He put his own safety aside. It could have been a trap. He also gets off his animal and puts the man on his animal, forcing him to walk all the way. There are so many ways in which this man loved the Jewish guy that we should like. Look, he did. He loved him as himself. Man, I just think it's important for us to observe that whoever needs you is your neighbor. And to be a neighbor to another person is to meet that person's need, whatever the need is. So let me me state that clearly. Whoever needs you is your neighbor. And to be a neighbor to another person is to meet whatever need that they have. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't have to say, love yourself first. Make sure you love yourself. No, he, He's saying, love others as you already love yourself. I mean, I, you know, I, I love myself, and nobody's ever had to teach me to love myself, all right? Because I'm constantly pursuing my good. Like when I'm hungry, I feed myself. When I need a jacket on, I put a jacket on. When I need a new jacket, I go buy a new jacket to be sufficient for what I need. When I'm I'm needing rest, I go get on my bed. If I need a better bed so that I can rest better, I go get me a better bed. Like I love myself, all right. And this is what Jesus is saying. Love other people the way that you love yourself. That's what true love is. That's what an expression and demonstration of loving others is. And so, I think we need to ask the question, do I love my neighbor like this? Do I love my neighbor like this? I want to make a confession right now. I cannot love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't love my neighbor as myself. Like, I've got 38 years of life experience. And on my resume, you know, grilling hamburgers, proficient. All right? Um, Cutting straight lines in the grass with my John Deere, masterful. Like, I am a wonderful straight line cutter on my John Deere. Okay? But loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, failure. Loving others as myself, failure. Failure. I've tried it and I've failed. I mean, there have been times in my life where I loved food more than I love God. I love chocolate chip cookies more than I love God. I love sports more than I love God. I loved other people more than I love God. I love trivial things more than I love God. I have failed and failed and failed. So if the most important commandment in the Bible is love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I failed at that. Does that make me hopeless? Yes. And no. I'm hopeless because I'm separated from God. I know that if I have gone away in one jot or one till, then I'm guilty of breaking the whole law. And God would look down on me and say, guilty, guilty, guilty as charged. And you know what? I would have to say, you're exactly right, God. I have baked chocolate chip cookies and enjoyed them more than I've ever enjoyed you. I'm guilty. But God would also say, you're not hopeless. Because I have a son. I have a son who I have sent and he was born of a virgin and he lived an entire life to 33 years of age and let me tell you what he did. He loved me with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, with all of His mind, and He loved His neighbor as Himself every day of His life, all the way to the cross, where He loved you all the way through His death, even when all of the furious, righteous wrath that I brought upon Him, He never went down because He loved you as Himself. And so, yes, you're hopeless, but no, you're not hopeless if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ the Lord. And this is the kicker, is that when you put your faith in Christ, you know what happens? He gives you new desires, He gives you a new spirit, He gives you a new heart, and He gives you a new power. I now have a desire for the glory and greatness of God. I now have a heart of flesh, a heart of stone, I have a heart of flesh that beats for the glory of God. I no longer have the Spirit of the flesh, I have the Holy Spirit who gives me wisdom. And not only, I don't have just fleshly power, I have the power that raised Jesus from the dead so that I can wake up in the morning and I can truly love God with all my heart. I can truly love other people and I can enjoy every minute of it. I want to ask you, does the prisoner in, in jail who has embezzled money, thrown into prison with a $200,000 bond, does he love the individual who pays off all of his debts in the business world and then goes to that jail and lays down $200,000 cash and rescues him out of jail and gives him a new business to run? Does he love that guy? He does. He does. Does the prisoner of war who's down in a foxhole all by himself and and all kinds of enemies are surrounded by him, and it looks like he's going to be killed, and and a few soldiers, his comrades, come and rescue him out of that hole and deliver him over into safety so that that man can live the rest of his life and see his kids and and be with his wife for the rest of his life. Does he love those guys? He loves them. Why? Because they've been rescued. They've been redeemed. They've been given a new life, a new lease on life. In the same way, that's why we love our God and we love our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's finally look at this dilemma about worship. And we'll be finished. We see the question about worship. We see the answer about worship. And now we see the dilemma. The scribe kind of takes this authoritative position and he says, you know what? You're right, teacher. You, you are right. You go, boy. You know, you have truly said that He is one and there is no other besides Him. You see, he likes the teacher, but he doesn't, he doesn't have this posture of humility. He doesn't have this posture of, of lowliness before Jesus. And so he says, yeah, you're right. To love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and all that is right. And to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's the greatest act of worship that you can give, the scribe says. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. We take our observation glasses on right here, and we look and we say, what does Jesus say and what does he not say? He doesn't say, that's great, man, you're in the kingdom. He doesn't say, oh, man, that's terrible. You're so far outside the kingdom, you've got no hope. No, he says you're not far from the kingdom of God. And I think we've got to, if he answers the question perfectly, we've got to ask the question, why is the guy not in the kingdom? Why doesn't he belong to the family of God? And I know some of you have the answer. And the answer is this. Is because he does not see Jesus Christ for who he is. He does not see Jesus Christ for who he is. Listen, Jesus has all along in his ministry said, I am the bread of life, come to me and eat. I am the chief shepherd, come to me and take pasture. I am the cornerstone. I am the door for the sheep. I am the express image of God. I'm the good shepherd, the great high priest. I'm the king of Israel, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's been saying that. And this man has not been able to recognize it and see Jesus for the glorious Messiah whom He is. So that's why He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And so let's land the plane right now at this point and ask the question, are you in the kingdom of God? Are you in the kingdom of God? And when I ask that question, Phil, if you want to come on up. When I ask that question, I'm not asking you if you love God with everything that you've got and have never made a mistake in loving God. And I'm not asking you if you love your neighbor as yourself and you've never made a mistake in loving your brother or sister or your mom and dad or your teammates. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, are you in the kingdom by saying, I've repented of my sins. I've believed in the only Savior whose name is Jesus. I have confessed my sinfulness, my idolatry. I have gone before Him and asked for His forgiveness, and He has washed me with His blood. His work on the cross is sufficient for me. And no, I don't love God like I want to. No, I don't love God like I'm supposed to. No, I don't love my neighbor as myself, but I trust in the One who does. Are you in the kingdom in that way? I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Every one of us comes to a place in our lives where there is a dilemma about worship. Some of you have reconciled that dilemma. Some of you have bowed your knee and your heart and you have said, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I praise God for every one of you who have. For those of you who have not, For those of you who are still holding on to your own sovereignty, holding on tightly to your own independence and autonomy, I call you today to not be near the kingdom of God, but to be in it by trusting in the King and trusting in His work on your behalf. Give your life to Him today. And I will tell you this, a whole new life will open up to you. And loving God and loving others will never, ever look more sweeter than it does right now. Give your life to Christ. Give it to Him as we sing His praises right now.